Do you want to know how to save the healthcare industry billions of dollars or just not want to kill your patients? Just keep listening. Good evening. This is Kelsey Riggio, Joanna Renhack, and Deanna Reichert talking about diagnostic errors in medicine. Thank you for taking the time to join us in quarantine from your respective couches. Did you know that an average of 10 lost years of life at $75,000 to $100,000 per year, there is a loss of $73.5 billion to $98 billion in quality-adjusted life years for those deaths conservatively? And if the estimate of a recent health affairs article is correct, preventable death being 10 times the Institute of Medicine estimate, the cost is $735 billion to $980 billion. But what is a diagnostic error, you ask? A diagnostic error occurs when one of these three circumstances occur. The wrong diagnosis is made solely based off of your medical gestalt, the correct diagnosis of a patient is delayed, or if the correct diagnosis of a patient is made post-mortem. Diagnostic errors have consequences to patients and to the healthcare industry. Since it's all about the patient, let's start with consequences to patients. They can experience physical harm such as pain, complications from advanced disease, bleeding, fatigue, and death. Patients can also suffer emotional harm such as possible mistrust in healthcare providers, regret about an earlier opportunity to diagnose a disease, and worrying about the welfare of family and friends in addition to their anticipation of pain and suffering from treatment of the disease. Financial harms are also incurred, such as the cost of extensive testing and treatment, increased insurance premiums, and lost income for the patient and those family members who help the patient. Diagnostic errors have consequences when it comes to the healthcare system and the provider who made the error as well. There is an obvious financial burden when it comes to unnecessary testing and treatment. Providers can suffer emotional consequences from a misdiagnosis on a patient or from inappropriate testing and treatment on a patient. So what are some of the factors that contribute to diagnostic error? Let's talk a little bit about the cognitive miser. This term is described as when an individual uses the least amount of cognitive effort whenever possible in order to reserve mental processing for when it is needed the most. Unfortunately, this is human nature and is often done automatically. In order to avoid the cognitive miser, it is important that as a provider, we learn ways to recognize this and overcome it. There will be many instances when a patient presents with certain symptoms and there are two routes a provider may take. There's either the easier route, where a more common and simple disease is considered, and then there's the more difficult route, where a more complex and less common disease is considered. This is when the brain reverts to the cognitive miser and tries to pick the more common, simple condition. This is when it's important to be aware of this factor, which can contribute to diagnostic error. Here is an example. We have a 67-year-old Hispanic male presenting to the ED with severe abdominal pain and fever after being transferred from his PCP. He was seen three days earlier at the same emergency department with a complaint of constipation for seven days. The provider prescribed the patient a laxative and sent the patient home without any imaging obtained. Now, the patient was seen by another provider who sent the patient for an abdominal series x-ray, which showed obvious pneumoperitoneum. The provider wanted to get a confirmation on the findings and sent the patient to CT. CT confirmed pneumoperitoneum secondary to perforated descending colon. From time of ED arrival to being rushed into the OR, three hours had lapsed. This is a perfect example of the cognitive miser and how it was failed to be recognized. 
the patient arrived at his PCP with seven days of constipation. The choice that requires the least amount of cognitive energy would be to assume that this is only a case of constipation that can be treated with laxatives. Instead of considering other, more complex causes of this constipation, the patient failed to receive imaging, which could have potentially diagnosed his condition sooner, resulting in a diagnostic error. There are several types of bias that contribute to diagnostic error. One is confirmation bias, which is the tendency to look for confirming evidence to support a working diagnosis rather than look for disputing evidence. This can go hand in hand with framing bias, which occurs when certain features are emphasized or certain information is included or left out in order to make one diagnosis look more likely. There is also visceral bias, which focuses more on a provider's feelings than the previous two biases. This can be negative, such as negative perceptions about non-adherent patients. It could also be a positive feeling toward a patient, such as failing to consider malignancy as a diagnosis in a very likable patient. Obviously, despite the nature of these feelings, they both result in negative outcomes for the patient. Now with these three types of biases in mind, let's try an example. A patient with a history of arthritis and drug addiction comes in with worsening back pain. The provider assumes that it is just the drug-seeking behavior typical that the patient relates to arthritis. The provider refuses to obtain imaging despite the patient reporting a history of a difference in the back pain and misses a diagnosis of a spinal epidural abscess. I'll pause here for a few seconds so you can come up with an answer as to what type of bias this is. If you said visceral bias out loud to yourself, you are correct. Now that we know all about the different types of biases, let's discuss another factor that can lead to diagnostic error, which includes anchoring heuristic versus availability heuristic. Anchoring heuristic occurs when a provider receives a piece of information, such as a lab result, and anchors themselves on this piece of information without considering other possible causes and giving necessary attention to other lab results. Here's an example. We have a 14-year-old female presenting to her PCP for dysuria. She is sexually active and was previously treated for chlamydia three days ago, but continues to have pain while urinating. The provider assumes that the patient is not taking her antibiotics regularly as instructed, while ignoring the fact that in addition to a positive chlamydia test three days ago, her UA also showed 2 plus leukocytes. The provider reiterates to the patient to take her medication regularly and sends her home when she actually was positive for an untreated UTI. Next is availability heuristic. This type of diagnostic error often occurs due to a previous experience a provider may have had with a patient. The provider may have had a previous patient with a diagnosis that presented similarly to their current patient. Because of this, that provider assumes this patient's diagnosis is the same as his previous patient. Sometimes this may be the case. But it's important to always consider other options as well because not every disease will present the exact same way every time. Have you ever heard of blind obedience? This is yet another factor that can lead to diagnostic error. This occurs when a provider places emphasis on an expert opinion or lab test even though it may be misleading or is not necessarily correct. Let's look at an example. We have a 10-year-old female who presented with left wrist pain after falling off of her bike. A left elbow, wrist, and hand x-ray series was ordered to further evaluate. The radiologist reported a normal x-ray when there was actually a left radial head fracture present. Having access to different specialties can be very beneficial, but it is always important to be vigilant when, ex when assessing your own patients. Not every lab is perfect, and we are all still human, so always remember to use these resources as guidelines and to avoid placing undue emphasis on these results. 
So far, we have talked a lot about the different kinds of error as well as the impacts they have. So let's now get into how to prevent these errors in the first place. You remember that part of the Hippocratic Oath about do no harm? First off, when considering any diagnostic imaging or labs in a patient, take the time to calculate the pretest probability. This means the likelihood that the patient would have the specific disease that you are testing for. To do this, think about the patient's risk factors, such as their demographics, lifestyle habits, prior diagnoses, and family history. When a diagnosis has multiple potential underlying causes, estimate the likelihood of each potential underlying diagnosis, not just one diagnosis. Hey ladies, do you want to know another way to avoid diagnostic errors? Yeah! Through the use of checklists! A great example of checklist use is in the OR when a timeout is called. The circulating nurse then reads off a checklist to ensure the correct surgery is being done on the correct patient, and etc. Although this may not be apparent, this system can be applied to everyday diagnostics. General checklists ensure the fundamental aspects of clinical encounter that contribute to decision-making have been completed, such as taking a complete history, performing a focused and purposeful PE, generate and differentiate initial differential diagnosis before other tests are even obtained, embark on a plan while acknowledging ambiguity. And for those of you who don't know, ambiguity is a hard word to say. Many providers utilize these checklists when first beginning to practice medicine. They cause you to pause and reflect on what information was just gathered. Even seasoned providers could use a reminder from time to time to reflect on what is actually being presented in front of them. As you grow in knowledge, don't let the basic steps fall by the wayside. One specific type of checklist is a differential diagnosis checklist. This type of checklist lists common, serious, and less common causes of a given concern. For instance, a checklist for chest pain in patients would help providers remember common and life-threatening causes such as myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolism, or aortic dissection, but also herpes zoster and, and or rib fracture. Having this printed out as a hard copy instead of an app on your cell phone is the best method so that you can modify it to your own strengths and weaknesses, as well as not having to worry about your battery always being charged. Cognitive forcing checklists ensure that common cognitive pitfalls are considered and avoided prior to the final diagnosis being made. For example, when assigning a diagnosis of posterior nasal drip to a patient presenting with chronic cough, a provider could always be prompted to indicate that they are consciously avoiding premature closure by considering serious alternative causes such as lung cancer. Checklists are great, but probably not as great as the next wave to avoid medical errors. And the most unpopular way of avoiding medical errors is through error reporting systems. While no one likes to report errors they have made, it is an essential part of the job in order to create systems to further prevent errors. By not reporting errors or even poor outcomes, the problem is not truly recognized for what it is, a problem. This sort of error occurs often. Like when a patient is discharged from the hospital, but returns in two days because they were given an incorrect diagnosis. Reasons for not reporting errors include, but are not limited to, fear of being penalized or the lack of time and not remembering to report it later on in your shift. But receiving feedback will decrease the likelihood of mistake recurring. For a reporting system to be successful, however, an institution must build a non-punitive and supportive culture. In addition, there must be clear, rapid, and resource manner for responding to reported errors. 
So maybe checklists aren't your thing. Another thing to, that's helpful is clinical diagnostic decision support, which is a potential means for decreasing diagnostic error, which I just said. So great. We often like to lean on technology to aid in medical decision making when we don't know the answers, such as programs that generate differential diagnoses based on inputted clinical data and programs that suggest a clinical approach based on laboratory or imaging results. These programs may either prompt clinicians to consider diagnoses that would otherwise have been overlooked or select appropriate testing based on the results. Currently available programs are unproven but have significant potential to be useful. It is important that clinical decision support tools are applied in the proper setting. Risk calculators need to be validated for inpatient and outpatient settings. An easier and perhaps an opportunity for learning would be to take a brief moment to discuss the case with a colleague or multiple colleagues. What is great about individual providers is their past experience and depth of knowledge will always be different from everyone else's. And contrary to what everyone wants to believe, any provider, including physicians, do not know everything despite going through rigorous medical training. Healthcare feels like a competitive environment when being alpha is the last thought that should be going through the provider's minds. There are patients' lives at stake. If you feel as if you're unable to present questions to your colleagues, then it's time for you to begin a new office trend. Non-judgmental discussions are key to providing top quality care to patients and leads to a decline in errors when multiple minds come together in medical decision-making. We are not advocating to call a meeting for every single patient by any means, but we have all seen that patient where nothing absolutely makes sense. In summary, diagnostic error occurs when a wrong diagnosis is made or pursued, resulting in physical and emotional harm to the patient, unnecessary health care costs from testing or treatment, or even death from a misdiagnosis. We discussed many factors that contribute to diagnostic error, from anchoring heuristic to confirmation bias. We also discussed ways to avoid these errors in the first place, such as calculating pretest probability or using checklists like timeouts frequently done in the OR. As healthcare providers, we can all benefit from implementing these strategies into our daily practice in hopes to reduce the burden on the healthcare industry and prevent harm to our patients. Thank you for taking the precious time out of your quarantine by listening to our podcast. We hope this information provided will help you save lots of lives and lots of money. Also, thank you to Rocco and Louis, our mascot dogs, for staying mostly quiet during this recording.